Hey fellow brain pickers, how would you like to get featured as a guest on multiple podcast shows like this one and get massive exposure? My company, getfeatured.com, will get you featured on targeted shows, will design you a custom bio page, pitch you to the host, prepare you for the shows, and promote you so you get even more brand exposure. Head over to getfeatured.com to get major publicity for your brand. Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hey, fellow brain pickers, and welcome to episode 98 of Can I Pick Your Brain? My guest today went from growing up as a poor immigrant raised by a single mother to becoming a self-made millionaire, best-selling author, and inspirational leader. Pejman Gadimi is what I would call a super achiever. Some of his accomplishments include creating over $40 million in annual revenue from one of his companies he no longer runs but still owns 100% of generating half a million dollars in annual profits from a royalty-based business, launching 10 books of which his latest has become the second best-selling self-published book in the world with over 150,000 copies sold, and creating Secret Entourage, an online support platform for entrepreneurs visited by well over 2 million people a month. Now, to help introduce him, I've put together a short rap. Here he goes. Raised by a single mom, this guy is far from dumb. His rule of thumb is don't be a bum if you want to be someone. Making money in ninth grade, now he's self-made. Aston Martin, what a nice upgrade. Fast cars, hanging with stars, VIP bars, what's next? A trip to Mars? How about stopping the sabotage, learning to arbitrage in a secret entourage? False beliefs you need to shake. There are risks you must take. Don't expect overnight success for goodness sake. And when you get too greedy, think of the needy. It's funny how money ain't as sweet as honey. So without delay, I'm excited today to welcome a guy who ain't no cliche. The one and only Pejman, a.k.a. PJ. PJ, welcome to the show. And thanks for letting me pick your brain. <laughs> What's up, Dan? I appreciate that rap, man. That was the best. <laughs> Love it. It's always, uh, it's always really scary to actually do the freaking rap. But then once I'm actually doing it, I'm like... All right, I'm going. It's like jumping out of a plane. It's like three, two, one, and they push you out, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm flying now, you know. So, uh, yeah, how you that doing? That was pretty talented, man. I, I mean, I enjoyed the, uh, the accent with it. You know, it gives it a very unique flair. <laughs> what was it, the Jewish accent, the white accent, or the British accent? <laughs> well, I was going with the British one. Right, right. Oh, boy. So, um, You've had some crazy success, man. I mean, it, seriously, I don't even know where to begin with you. So I think what we'll do is, can we just go back to you being um, a little boy? Uh, you immigrated from Iran and then went to France and then to the US, right? Yep. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What was it like, like jumping from country to country and, and basically, you know, growing up uh, with a single mom? What happened to your dad and, and you know, what was it like? Well, you know, we were chased out of Iran because of the revolution, so it wasn't really an option to leave Iran. And so my dad was, uh, my mom was very important in the in the country of Iran, but she worked for the Shah, for the king. So when he was overthrown, we were forced to live. On the other side, my dad uh, was really a, a wealthy, powerful banker, and uh, he didn't want to leave because he pledged to the new regime. So it was kind of a, 
uh, a conflict where she was forced to leave and he was okay to keep his job and kind of continue living there. Whoa. And honestly, I think he just, he really wanted to leave and he was okay with leaving, but I think he realized that he wasn't ready to start new somewhere else. So when we left, he was supposed to join us, but later changed his mind. And oh, you know yeah. what's funny is a lot of people think that I was raised kind of in this, you know, ghetto environment and this clutter, and it really wasn't the case. You know, my mom did a really good job at making sure that I was at the least sheltered from from kind of the poverty we were undergoing when we moved to France, and at, at least I didn't have to feel it as much as, uh, you know, like she was feeling it and she was feeling the pressure. Mm. And so it wasn't until later when I got older that I realized how much my mom did sacrifice to make sure that I had somewhat of a normal upbringing despite not having all the things I could possibly want when I was a kid. Wow. What was it like, uh, I guess, going to the... What age were you when you moved to the U.S.? Uh, I was about... 13, 14, like... 13, 13, 14 years old? Yeah, I think I was 13, actually. I was like, I had just turned 13. That was about a year. So it was, I was in LA for about two years before I uh, moved into uh, Virginia, to Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. And that's where kind of like most of my United States life kind of took place until in 2011, I retired in South Florida. You retired in 2011? How old were you then? Well, I actually retired three times in my life, you know, and I, I think most people have two retirements. I just had three. Uh, my first retirement was when I got fired from my banking job. And what I mean by that, I mean, I had enough money to retire. So even though I was a corporate America worker and uh, I didn't have 10 different businesses and so on and so forth, I still made a lot of money. So I was OK retiring. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I had kind of a change in direction at that point. And then the second time I retired was when everything I was doing was completely automated and I decided to start working on my passion project, no longer caring for spending any type of time uh, or effort working to turn just the money uh, into my pockets. So mm -hmm. I consider myself to have retired three times and at any given time today, I can just stop doing anything I want and I would still be okay uh, for this generation and probably the next one. Wow. And how old were you when, when you were in the banking world? Well, I was actually, I have a really interesting story with banking. I was an 18-year-old bank manager, which is unheard of 18. because I didn't have a, a, a degree, uh, anything else. I was 18 years old. I became a wow. bank manager. And by 23, I was an executive vice president for the same bank. Jeez. Uh, by 25, I was fired. So uh, I had a good run in banking, you know, I learned a lot and I leveraged it a lot and also had a really nice comfy salary and bonus and also had uh, tremendous amounts of investments in real estate because I had so much cash and didn't know what to do with it. And so I was always clever. I was always kind of the guy that figured out a way to make ends meet. And so very early, I never took that for granted when I started making money. So the way I see it, looking at your, your story, there's three, if we can simplify things a little bit here, there's typically there's like three stages, right? The first stage was, was corporate. That's where you kind of started climbing the corporate ladder. You did really well for yourself. I think you were managing, what was it, 700 people at one time? Uh, up to, well, up I, said, to I had about 800 employees by the time I got fired. Holy cow. So you were, you were uh, managing 800 employees, uh, vice president uh, of a bank, of a Fortune 500 bank, no less. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the first stage of your life. And then I guess, or the career, second stage would be when you went, ventured off on your own as an entrepreneur, started your, your own company, um, became, uh, got your first million, I guess, 
Uh, well, no, I got my first million in real estate way, way before uh, I started in business. Oh, really? Okay. I, like, you see, the, the the big thing that people don't realize about my life is that it's not a, a rags to riches story, and it's also not a story that involves like all of a sudden business success. My mm-hmm. life is a gradual piggyback of small successes that led to enough of a foundation to start working on bigger successes. And okay. so a lot of my earlier years, you know, when I was in banking, I mean, I started working at 14. So at 14, you know, you would think, well, okay, this kid has no papers, he has no green <laughs> card, he has no money, and he's walking to work, right? So as a 14 year old kid, literally, I'm like almost 15, I go to work, <laughs> and I'm a telemarketer. And as a telemarketer, I'm making 12 bucks an hour, like mm-hmm. illegally. Yeah. Now, <laughs> after I figure out how to be a good telemarketer, before I'm literally 16 years of age, I'm racking in 2,500 a week in commissions. Wow. So by the age of 18, I'm the director of that same telemarketing company, and I, I'm still in high school, and I'm making 70K a year, working like literally part-time. Wow. Like, so then when I leave that job, because I decide that, you know, I come from an Iranian family, and so it's big for us to go to school and, you know, education and all that crap. So (laughs) in order to be able to go to college time-wise, I have to change jobs. And so I look into banking because it's a more nine to five type of, you know, job. Yeah. Uh, But but it leverages a lot of the retail sales and service uh, experience I had gotten through all those years working at that telemarketing company. Mm-hmm. So I make a transition into a bank manager, which that by itself is a story we could spend hours on. But uh, so I go into that job and very quickly I realize the upside of the job, no different than when I was in telemarketing. I really look into this and I'm like, Jesus, like I could really get promoted fast in this company, especially because of the economic boom and the fact that these guys are opening so many new branches so quickly mm-hmm. and they don't even have the staff to support their growth. So I didn't take that opportunity for granted. You know, I really started working and becoming the best version of any title I held in that company. And so I would keep getting promoted. And, you know, before I was like 22 years old, I had a 150K a year salary. I had a 200K a year bonus. Wow. So, you know, I was making money, right? Like I wasn't poor at that point. I wasn't like struggling. Mm -hmm. And I already drove a 911 Turbo Porsche. You know, I had my (laughs) house. I was okay. And I had so much leftover cash that I started looking for alternative ways for me to make additional money. And so I already had a side company that was washing cars and that was that what later turned into VIP motoring. And that company was nothing more than a detailing company. No, no big revenue. You know, I was barely taking 30K out of the 200K in revenue. It wasn't a big deal, but it was something on the side, you know, like something that was kind of auto, autopilot with two of my immigrant friends running it. <laughs> but, but the key, you know, the big thing was that I realized then the way I made my first million is I realized then that there was a unique opportunity in uh, the real estate market, but I didn't have time, nor did I care, nor do I like real estate. So I didn't really want to get in and become a real estate investor. What I did is I figured out a loophole in the system, which was that in, in Northern Virginia, where I lived, a lot of the home builders, like the Ryan Homes, Toll Brothers, and some of these big companies that build massive amounts of townhomes and single family homes, were always looking for land to build new homes because there was a shortage of units mm-hmm. and there was an influx of people moving into that area because of government jobs. Yeah. What ended up happening, people were spending, I mean, almost a million dollars for a townhome, you know, because they couldn't even find one. Yeah. So the values were off the chart. And since I was in banking, I understood the lending process behind how banks evaluated 
their ability to lend on homes, no appraisals, no income verifications and everything else. So I pretty much played the system against itself. I would buy lots, I would go in like Toll Brothers sales centers and I would pretend that I wanna buy 14 to 15 units there. And all I would need is a bank pre-approval letter. Well, I worked at a bank. So that was pretty easy and I would get a pre-approval letter saying I was approved to buy as many units as I wanted. And so what I would do is I would buy these lots for $5,000 a piece, which was nothing, but it would give me about seven months before they were ready to be built. And then by then they would expect, you know, like my loan to first and so on and so forth. So I could pay for my options, et cetera. Hmm. But you see, I knew that within seven months, by the time people figured out these homes were for sale there and they were ready to be moved into, people would be in line killing themselves to buy one of these homes. And therefore, they would raise the prices almost 100K up just in seven months and 100K cash premiums. And people would be lined up to pay because I've seen it before. So I did this where I would go in line and sell my lots, which were better than the ones they, they were left over. They were ready to move in. They were better locations because I was one of the early guys that picked them. Mm-hmm. And I would sell my $5,000 lots for 70 grand to people. And wow. I did this 72 times oh before on the 73rd and 74th time, I was kind of stopped because they started putting my picture in all the sales centers not to sell me a home. Oh my goodness me. So that made me my first million. So by, by 23, I had like $1.7 million in the bank in addition to like almost half a million a year in salary. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Let me ask you this. Do you think it was it was luck and timing or I want to what I really want to do for the sake of our audience, because it's an amazing story and it's really inspiring. But ultimately, you know, for, for our audience to really take something from this other than just to be inspired and wow, you know, I want to reverse engineer really you as a person. Because you've been you've been so successful and the question is is how? Like what sets you apart from everybody else? Because most people, right? In, in, in any industry are not they're not successful mm-hmm. so what Correct. okay so what is it what what do you think it about you well I know what it is because I self-analyze myself all the time and I and I interact you know I have my own academy Secret mm-hmm. Entourage Academy where I interact with a lot of uh, super wealthy people and we just have discussions on a lateral level about money and you know business and everything and I can tell you the biggest differentiator between me and people is my ability to connect my ideas to the mechanics of making it happen instantly. I don't have a delay from idea to execution. And most people do. Like most people are filled with fears or things in between. So when they get an idea, they are their greatest own enemy and they prevent themselves from moving forward or they're afraid of it or they're not sure or they're not there. And I'm able to make instant decisions. And I think that has been my greatest strength uh, from a very young age is that I was never afraid of the potential outcome of trying something. And what I mean by that is, look, I, I could have easily bought that, that first time I tried to do this with homes, right? I could have easily said, well, you know what? Like, I'm going to do one home at a time and try to figure this out, right? Mm, yeah. But I didn't care. I was like, you know what? What's the risk? I don't care. I'll risk my five grand or go to shit. So what? You know, five times five is 25 grand. I'll risk 25 grand and if I don't make it, then I lost 25 grand. Best case scenario, 25, you know, you take five times 70, now you're 350 grand. So, you know, it just, like, I don't have that, I don't have that delay between my Why? input and output. Why? You know, Why? So, which yeah, is whatever what? I see. 
I hear that, but why? Because most people, you know, they're scared of taking that risk because they may lose it all, right? There's that, right, that it's I real. Think, I think I've always looked at my life as what if I don't take it is a greater risk than what if I lose it. Like what I mean by that is I always look at life as what is the alternative of doing? It's not doing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the guarantee is by not doing, you'll never make anything, you'll never build anything, you'll never be anything. But by doing, there's no real risk. I don't believe there's a risk. I mean, people look at money as a risk factor. I don't think money's a risk because money's something you can always make more of or make less of because I'm not afraid to work. So I know if I run out of money, I can go to work and figure out a way to make money. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like I'm going to create some other million dollar business. I mean, I can literally go get a job if I need to and, and make money. You know. Right, right. So I, I understand that my skills are the reason why a job would pay me big money, not because there is jobs in the industry or in my state or blah, blah, blah. So I don't look at circumstances, the reason why I would ever win or lose. I look at my skill, my capacity as the reason why someone would offer me a high paying job or Mm -hmm. for the same reason why I have so much faith that if I start a business, I'm not afraid of its failure because I understand that a business is an extension of my own capacity to begin with, you know, in the earlier stages. Yeah. So uh, I'm never afraid of that. Uh, I am afraid of though losing the opportunity of the attempt, which is why I take that significantly more seriously than the opportunity of losing or making money. Interesting. Can you just to put it into context? Because obviously, in the intro, you know, I talked about your successes, and we just spoke about, you know, some incredible successes. What about failures? What are some of the biggest failures you've had? Well, I think the failures are actually linked to the exact same thing you just brought up, which is uh, the fact that because I act so fast, right? Exactly. I don't always come up with a systematic approach, which then means that my trial and error sometimes costs me twice what it could cost me if I would have waited. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't think I've ever had a failure in life because I don't consider myself having given up towards anything I've ever wanted to achieve. So, you know, if I was ever interested in doing something, I never started something I didn't finish, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't ever consider myself having failed at anything, but I do consider myself, let, let's use Secret Entourage as a good example. So all of a sudden, I'm making all this money in the, online, in, the, uh, in the offline space when it comes to cars and luxury lifestyle, concierge services and consulting, and I've, I'm already, I've already gotten out of my job, and now I'm like very stable again, right? And all of a sudden, I get this whole thing about this need to become an entrepreneur, not a business owner, and about educating people, changing the world, and I decided to do that through a platform called SecretEntourage.com, mm-hmm. which was, you know, originally was nothing more than a blog where I teach people business, education, everything completely free. When I started Secret Entourage, well, I had no experience with online marketing. I had no experience with how businesses online work. And I had no experience when it came to understanding the dynamics of how revenue flows through an online business. But yet between the time I came up with that idea and the time I decided to start that business and completely was up and running uh, was roughly like 60 days. Now, should I go back tomorrow, you know, and say, hey, I'm going into a new industry and even though I have a great track record in some other industries, I would still slow down and say, wait, let me do my due diligence and understand the dynamics of how to penetrate that industry better, easier, and faster. 
because the, the cost opportunity, the loss is not that we didn't make it at Secret Entourage because we actually ended up building a very successful business and continue to run it. The problem is the failure in that was that what I did in eight years, I could have done in three. Should I have been wiser and less uh, like less fast, if that makes sense. So for one second, but now you're contradicting what you said before, right? So before your advice was, if you've got an idea, execute, 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 execute. Don't mm -hmm. think just, and now you're telling me and the audience here that looking at your company, your online company, Secret Entourage, Mm -hmm. Even though it's really successful, but it's taken you eight years when it should have taken you three had you not jumped on the gun and you shouldn't have executed so early. Well, so yeah, but the downfall, you're correct, but the downfall was if I would have taken too long, then I would have allowed my fears to kick in and potentially never started to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I don't, that's why I said I don't necessarily look at that as a failure. I look right. at that as a downfall of that process, if that makes sense. Do you think that most entrepreneurs fail because they, they, they're too slow or they're too fast? Uh, I don't think neither. I think most people fail because they don't understand themselves well enough when they start and they don't understand what they're starting. What does that mean? Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that means that most people, like, you know, like this, this is a very good example. So most people want to start a business because they want to make money. Correct. That's the number one, I think, reason why they're going to fail in business because what? they don't know themselves enough to know how to make money. So they think creating a third party entity is going to somehow make the money when they haven't figured out how money works to begin with as an individual. Well, hold on how a second. You, PJ, I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay. When you started your first business or when you started working at 14 years old, why did you work for money? What was the reason? Well, I worked to make money, but I didn't create right. a business to make money. Oh, you're talking about only people who are creating businesses to make. Okay. So when you created your first business, why did you create it? I created it with the essence of making money and exactly. I never made any. Oh, so you did. Okay. So you're talking from experience, the fact that you did start a company, you right. failed. I mean, look, if you start a business to make money, I'm not saying you can't make any money ever. You know, right. like there's plenty of people who work for money to make money. I mean, I love money. Like I consider it to be the essence of what businesses strive for. Businesses mm -hmm. should grow revenue. That is the essence of a business. It is Correct. for profit. The goal of a business is to make revenue. The goal of a business owner is to take that revenue and turn it into a portion of that revenue into profit for his pocket, right? Yeah. That is the goal of a business. Now, however, the goal of an individual that is starting a business should never be to make money. The goal in itself should be to become the best at whatever that business is providing, which in result will reward the money. So the focus should be on the quality of the work, not on the money. Perfect example, in my first, in my first very first business when I was a kid, which was to wash cars, right? Yep. My first thing was I was about money. I wanted to make money, so I came up with all this pricing and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. And my job was that if I washed X car, I would get X money. So I would see how many cars I can wash as fast as I can, right? Yeah. When I, when I changed my mind to saying, listen, it's not about how much we can make and how many cars we can move that day. It's about how high of a quality detail job we can do per car. People were willing to pay me four to five times more money than I was asking for per car. Mm -hmm. Making me have to work five times less to make the same money, opening my time, if I was good at it, to be able to even do more cars and quadruple and 
ultimately bring up the revenue significantly more. Mm-hmm. So, so, so one of the biggest critics I am when people said, you know, they see me driving an Aston Martin Lamborghini and their kids, you know, they come up to me and they say, listen, my, mark my words, my next car will be a Lamborghini. And you know, nine, I would say probably 99.9% of the time, I'm like, okay, we're never going to speak again. Oh my God, or that's never so gonna sad. Make it. That's sad. No, and they're like, well, why do you got to be such an a-hole? You know, yeah. like, why do you got to be that guy to break my dreams? Because I just said, mark my words, my next car will be a Lamborghini. And, and I tell people, because owning a Lamborghini is not a goal. It is the reward and the byproduct of doing something, of your talents and skill manifesting themselves. Should you have come to me and said, mark my words, my my restaurant will be the number one restaurant in South Florida. I will be the number one chef in Chicago. Mm. I will have the top dry cleaning service in Missouri. I would have said it is very likely that as the top of your whatever you're doing and of mm-hmm. your talent, you will most likely be able to afford two Lamborghinis, put them both in your garage, <laughs> stare at them, burn them, and do whatever you want out of them. So give me an example, I guess, in the in the early days when you were doing the, um, the when you were 14 years old, because this is where it kind of all began, where you, where you started to, to figure things out. Is that, did you learn that lesson the hard way or... or? Did you learn that lesson because you realized what wasn't working very quickly, what everybody else was doing, and you did something different? Can you give an example of when you... When no, you were- my, my, my life was different because, remember, I didn't have a green card, right? I didn't have the opportunity to work. I would go to McDonald's and beg them to let me clean their floors, and it told me to leave because they Whoa. couldn't hire me. So when I got my job as a telemarketer, my telemarketing job was the only lifeline I had. I did not have an alternative option to quit my job because I didn't like it and go do something else. Mm. So I put this idea in my head of liking what I'm doing and being like, oh, I love my job every day (laughs) and the people I work with are all wonderful out of my head altogether. Mm -hmm. I said, I am paid here to do this job. This job tells me to make phone calls and close appointments. Now, before I go ask for a raise, before I worry about should I be worth more money, is there a better job out there for me, I need to get really good at this job because that is what I committed to do for $12 an hour. And the acceptance that my agreement to do a job for $12 an hour means that I will be my best version and my opportunity to do that job as best as I can for what I accepted to do it in. That mentality very early on made me no longer worry about what the future holds, but rather allowed me to focus the work on the present Mm -hmm. to guarantee myself a future. Love it. Love it. And that's a very different mentality because most people who hate their job don't do a good job at their current job because they think they're going to get another job. But if they already are in a job, then it is their social responsibility to the person they shook the hand of that they said they would accept $3 an hour, $8 an hour, $14 an hour, $20 an hour to do the job they promised to do and do it well. And now in that job, there is many opportunities where by doing it well, people will notice and promote you. And and when you get promoted, you may find a lot of love and a lot of passion for the next job within the same organization that utilizes a different set of your talents. But that opportunity will never be open to someone who believes they are worth more, they are doing nothing to show that, and as a result of it, are always living into what could be, not what is and what is happening now. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. So we talked about mindset pretty much, right? So what about skills? Like what kind of skills would you say you had that, that allowed you to pretty much to do what you did? In other words, like you said, one of the things you said is that if I lost all my money tomorrow, I'd be able to get a, a, a well-paid job because of the skill set that I have. What is that skill set and can people learn those skills? Uh, well, it's not necessarily, you know, my thing is I, I've been able to want the two things I do today better than I think most people is I separate society from life. I think that's one of the big things I do. I don't consider everything in society to be necessary or the best part of life. Like, like I understand that society has certain systems that are built to turn. So I'm not, I'm not the anti everything guy. So in other words, I understand why the banking system is completely messed up, but necessary. I understand why these things function the way they do. And as a result of it, uh, I'm able to, to move on faster because my job doesn't become this, I'm going to fix the world all the time, Mm -hmm. but it becomes in understanding my position within and my value within the system, as well as how my personal, uh, being actually is able to benefit from that same system. Uh, so honest, self-honesty, I think, is the number one most important mindset skill I have. I'm not, I, I don't have ideas of grandeur. I understand that I have certain skills and talents and that anyone, even if you're starting a business, is only paying for that. So I'm only as relevant as the value I create for others. Um, mm-hmm. And so I find ways to create value for others, even in a job position. The, the second piece is that I align the reality of what's happening and I understand that the work I'm doing today, if I'm doing it in a way that is aligned to where uh, society is moving forward to in six, 12 months, two years, is very likely to catch me a break in the long term, more than the short term. So in other words, I'm not afraid to do the work now in preparation of what I've been able to forecast is going to happen down the road. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. What about the fact that you've published 10 books and before that you didn't read a single book. How, how do you do that? Well, I don't like reading, so I don't learn by reading. And again, that's where the self-honesty comes in. Just because I don't learn by reading doesn't mean I don't learn, right? I understand that I have a flaw where I don't like reading, so I get involved with this idea that my learning comes from experiencing and comes from interacting. Mm-hmm. So I put myself in positions of interaction all the time. Uh, interact with very successful people in their industries and understand why they are successful. And some, and, and I click, others do not, you know? But the idea is being exposed to it. I do not look at it with judgment of do I like the guy or not. I just understand the perspective of why he did and how he did what he did. Mm-hmm. So as a result of it, I'm able to do that. And your latest book that you've uh, published, which actually sold, is it over 150,000 copies? No, so I'm going to correct you. So Third okay. Circle Theory sold yes. 350,000 copies worldwide. Oh, wow. Dang. Uh, yeah, and that book actually is not my latest. That is the book I released three years ago in 2011. And that book has been uh, a huge, huge success because it helps people do exactly what I do. Master circumstance, master society, and separate society from life. And sure. understand where purpose comes from and the idea of being purposeful. Uh, that's that's one. Two, my latest book, Radius, is actually the follow-up, the sequel to Third Circle Theory, and is what I call the universal language of business. So out of having had so much success in so many various industries, 
and having consulted, in addition to building my own businesses in multiple industries and all of them hitting record highs based on their capacity at the time, Mm-hmm. I have looked at what is the universal formula that connects all of these businesses and what is the universal formula that all of my friends and people I interact with in Secret Entourage Academy have had that has had massive success versus others have not. And I've been able to narrow down the entire ideology of business to this core formula. And this f- core formula which consists of symbols, which are then represented in the book as to what each symbol stands for, Mm -hmm. is the universal formula that no matter which idea, business, product, or brand, or empire goes through, at some point or another, it it will use this formula in one way, shape, or form. And, you know, it, it goes to one of the things I created with the book is what I call the timeline of a business. That every business goes through the five pillars of entrepreneurship, which are idea, product, business, brand, and empire. And by understanding each of these pillars and the timeline that a business can undergo, and to use that formula to then plug in, you could literally plug in forward or backward any idea, any business, any brand, any empire, or any product, and immediately understand what is its max capacity, how far can it get, are you prepared, and everything in between connecting uh, all of these five pillars. You want to test it out? Sure, I'm happy to. Okay, so my company get featured. Let's do it. Let's let's put it through the timeline. Let's see what happens. Sure. So where do we start? So you tell me what have you built so far? So meaning have you already built? So let's define the five pillars first, right? Okay. What is yeah. an idea? Nothing more than uh, a thought, right? Yes. What is a product or service? Something that you have sold someone. Correct or a service you're providing in exchange for revenue, correct? Yeah. Then a business is that same product or service uh, put together through a process. So when the product and service is sold through a process, it becomes Mm -hmm. a business. Okay. And when a business then has created trust, consistency, and process for a duration of five plus years, it is allowed to evolve to a brand. And when a brand then has created multiple verticals of resources and customers to recycle over and over, it allows itself to go into new industries, recycling both, creating an empire. Hmm. So, so what happens is a lot of times people believe they have a business, but by going through these peelers, they realize all they have is a product. Hmm. A, a very easy uh, angle, and I'll go through your company as well if you want me to, but a very easy angle is to look at a t-shirt company, for example, right? Okay. Someone starts a clothing company because it's easy and it's young and it's what most young people want to do, whatever. Yeah. So they go into it and they say, hey, listen, I have this clothing company. I have this t-shirt brand. So first off, that by itself is a, a disvalidation of everything that's possible because if you just started, right, you cannot have a t-shirt brand. What you have is a t-shirt <laughs> so, so what you have is you have a product, but you're already glorifying it to be a brand. Get it? But, well, hold on, PJ. Let's stop you for a second. Sure. But, but people want to almost fake it till they make it. Sometimes perception is is worth something, right? Like sometimes but, you want. But yeah, right? but you're wrong because they want to fake it till they make it to their audience. That's fine. But when you lie to yourself, you're also lying to yourself as to what you should be working on. Mm-hmm. And instead, you're working on elements that have no correlation with your future and the growth of your product or service, mm-hmm. which is that T-shirt. Yeah. Instead, you have these ideas of grandeur about brands and empires and doing this. 
But here's what happens. You're dreaming of the future, ignoring the present. Right. And the present is that you have a T-shirt in your hands, right? Mm -hmm. And that unless 100 people buy that T-shirt, you don't even have a product, technically. You just have an idea. And that unless a thousand people buy that T-shirt and you're able to create a process of fulfillment, delivery, service, and everything in between, you don't even own a business. Hmm. But yet you're going to people and you're saying, I have a brand, I have a brand, you know, it's this big brand. Okay, <laughs> fine. But, but because of that, you're not selling a T-shirt. And so how can a T-shirt company survive if they're not selling T-shirts? How can a T-shirt company grow to a great business to a great brand, like you're telling people, mm -hmm. if you are not putting t-shirts on people. So okay. that is where the disconnect is. So how do you go from one stage to the next? Because my guess is that a lot of people listening to this will be at a specific stage and they're stuck. Meaning a lot of people maybe, you know, maybe they've got an idea, but they don't know how to really get it into production. Or a I, I think a lot of people right. would have so, a product. So, which how do fun. they get it? You know, how do you get well, it to be an empire? Well, Look, remember, ideas, not every idea is meant for every person. So this is some of the things I break down in the book. First off, is the idea not just a good idea, but is the idea the right idea for you as an individual? Are you connecting your talents and skills to the, to the idea you have? Or are you just coming up with ideas people want that are unrelated to you, which have therefore no real ground to stand on? Mm -hmm. And that's the first mistake people make in ideas. They, and this goes back to what we're talking about, which is people have ideas to make money. Yeah. They don't have ideas to build a business. Get it? Yes. So, so because of that, the disconnect happens and they never have a foundation to stand on to get started. As a result of that, their ideas go in vapor and disappear. Get it? Yeah. So now the same thing comes with a product or service. You create a product or service and you're like, oh my God, I'm running this business. We're going to sell. No, you have a product or service. Have you validated that the market wants this product or service? Have you sold a hundred units? Have you sold a thousand units? Have you spoken to people who use your product and service? Have you figured out that you genuinely have a real product and service people want? Or do you just have a lot of work you've put into something nobody cares about? Mm -hmm. And then when you look at a business and you're like, listen, I'm running this business, we're gonna make some money. Well, why is it a business? Is it broken down to the process are the processes in place to allow you to work on your business and not in your business? Or are you still at the product stage creating that process and yet are already talking about expanding a business that doesn't exist? Mm -hmm. Well, let me take so, yours. Let me take your, your company, for example, that's doing $40 million a year in revenue. Actually, it's 50, it's 50 now and it's called, it's it's, called VIP Motoring. You've got to change your stats on your website because all the information I've taken. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I tell people I'm not a marketer at heart. You know, like even when I got into online in the online <laughs> industry, I'm just not that that marketer guy. And so I, I still honestly, I still struggle with this idea of uh, like marketing myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, so sense. a lot of these components are not there. So I do apologize okay. for that. So you're doing 50 million dollars <laughs> a year in annual revenue and you basically are completely uninvolved in the company, right? I do maybe 15-minute phone call a day with that company CEO. Okay, so that's nuts because how do you... The first thing I would think is if somebody's running your whole company and it's generating $50 million a year, he's got to be somebody really trustworthy because the fact that he hasn't gone and taken the business from under you... Um, 
<laughs> well, you want to laugh? It's one of the guys that was washing cars with me. Stop it. Oh, my God. That's serious? hilarious. He was an immigrant then. He's not anymore. But isn't... Okay, but doesn't he have a little bit of... Do you ever feel that he's doing all the work and you're making all the money? Well, I'm not. Like, he makes very good money. Like, yeah. I mean, his salary in year is almost like a million a year. But he's still doing all the work and you're doing nothing and he's sending you checks every month. Yeah, well, I'm actually writing myself checks. I still right. have my own accounting globally <laughs> right. to I hear that. do all, all of my... <laughs> that's, I have a limit to where the money goes, right? Right, but, right. But let's, let's face what is the business, right? Let's say, let's say what is this business about. It's a luxury concierge service, okay? Okay. We were the first fund to allow people to make investments into alternative methods like exotic cars rather than stocks, bonds, and anything else. We, we allow people to do wealth preservation through purchases of high dollar watches, automobile, yachts, any art, any other luxuries. When so, you say wealth, hold on, when you say wealth, just for those listening that are not 100% sure what you're saying here, when you say wealth preservation, what do you mean? So most people look at, most people look at uh, exotic cars or watches or things as liabilities, you know, because they're buying yes. um, things that are going to depreciate, you know? In value, yeah. The, However, the reality is there's an actual methodology to a lot of the luxury brands and things that are highly wanted, not the stuff you buy at the mall, mm -hmm. uh, that has a lifelong lasting value that increases, not decreases once it's hit a certain margin. Mm -hmm. so, so as an example, uh, to maybe a simpler example to the audience that they can understand, if you buy a Rolex Submariner at the mall for $12,000, that watch is has no real value it drops to like six thousand dollars wow. so you just lost six grand in depreciation right yeah however however at six grand it never loses its value further if it's kept in good shape okay so what happens is let's say you bought a six thousand dollar submariner not a twelve thousand dollar one right and mm. you bought it right well, you could technically wear it for three to four years and then sell it for $6,000. Huh, so technically, you have transferred your wealth into that product instead of have spent money like the guy that did at the mall. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so, so when you look at small stuff like Rolexes, well, that's like the cheap stuff. That's the stuff that the average consumer understands. But... There's a lot higher brands like, you know, that are that are preserve their values through a systematic approach of like math, you know, what they're worth, how many cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. And the same can be said for cars. So certain cars appreciate, certain cars hold longer, you know, everything has a depreciation curve. Yeah. So we have become experts in asset allocation to luxury lifestyle. And so we are a full accounting firm that focuses on helping very like limited amount of clients every year allocate into luxury lifestyle without losing any money. And I want to get this clear. You started out washing cars and, <laughs> and, and that same business is built into this $50 million a year <laughs> asset allocation visit. It's insane. Well, it's because it's adaptive. Like the, the reason that business even exists is because I adapted to the environment Mm -hmm. um, and the environment told me that this was what was happening at the time. So I leveraged my talents and skills as a banker, as someone who understood investments, management, and funds, and figured out a way to link it 
to my passion, which was at the time automotive, luxury lifestyle, and things that I enjoyed myself. Right. When I didn't have that much money, I would look for loopholes on how to own stuff I couldn't afford. As I, as I got fired from my banking job, I had capital, I had money, I had time, I needed a way to take my car wash business to a real business, so it evolved to a tuning business, where we tuned exotic cars instead of wash cars and detail them. Mm-hmm. And from there, we got a location, we got uh, the shop, you know, and everything in between. And then through that, the recession was coming and people were not going to be investing into exotic cars as much as they were going to be doing it. Like meaning they weren't going to buy cars anymore, right? Yeah. And yeah. they were, they were going to be afraid and dealerships started cutting back all of our contracts to tune their cars. Mm. And so we had a $4 million business at the time that was about to, to hit a 800,000 revenue year if we didn't do something. Oh, wow. And so I had the money and because I think fast, I went and bought inventory from all of these dealers that were struggling at pennies on the dollar to prevent them from going out of business. And so I suddenly had a warehouse with $2 million in cars <laughs> when I didn't have but $2 million in my name, get it? And That's I spent so all of it buying cars when everyone else was running away from buying cars. I right. did that because I found a tremendous opportunity in the fact that cars were being discounted out of fear, mm. not out of true worth. Mm-hmm. And as a result, in order to float myself, the $2 million, because now I was completely invested all my money in my own business and I had no way to get out of it for another three years, mm-hmm. I created an alternative way for just three to four of my old clients in banking that were doing investments with us mm-hmm. to come in and bail me out of some of these cars by holding the investment with me so I could have more cash flow. You know what I love After about this story? it out. I adapted and this gave birth to the first fund that allowed more people to participate in. Hmm. You know what I love about this story, PJ, is it goes back to your what you were saying, which is that you gotta you gotta think fast, you gotta take action. Because if you sit there and you go, Oh, it's two thousand eight, oh the economy sucks, oh the competition's beating me, oh and you make all these excuses and you sit on your ass and you're like groaning about it, then yeah, you're right, you're gonna go broke and every you know and, but you didn't. You you kind of like you were just like, okay, quick. What do I do right now? Like, okay, here's an opportunity, right? In every single downturn, there's always opportunity, right? People people became very wealthy. Well, I mean, people were running away from the stock market during the recession, right? Yeah. I was a banker for a long time. They told me Bank of America stock was trading at four point five. I was yeah. like, I'm sorry, four point five what? They're like four <laughs> four and a half dollars. I'm like, are you joking? They're like, Lehman Brothers just went out of business. Bank of America is next. I'm like, okay, here comes the pinnacle of stupid. People are telling you Bank of America is going out of business. Yeah. Let me explain to people like that are listening that maybe don't understand finance. If Bank of America went out of business overnight, this country would be done. Right. They don't understand that. Like, they don't understand how that's all interconnected to this system that we've created, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when someone says Bank of America is a four and a half, that's an opportunity, not, yeah. not being afraid that the bank's going to go out of business because Bank of America is FDIC insurance, which means that even in the slowest of sense, the government would go out of business. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to happen. So it doesn't matter how desperate things get. You have to understand this, what's happening, you know, yeah. and you have to be knowledgeable about what's happening around you so that you understand how to identify opportunities. Hmm. Most people use a bank every day for their banking. They don't understand how a bank works. 
<laughs> they go up and they're like, my money's insured up to $100,000. I'm like, oh my God, you're so lost. <laughs> you know, like, like, like it, it's like so. Like, people are so disconnected from how things work. You know, they come to me and they say, "Listen, I want to learn the stock market to make money." And I tell them, "Why don't you learn the stock market? Because it's an essential way and thing that is happening in the world that you need to understand in order to identify opportunities outside of the stock market." Mm-hmm. And people are like, "Well, that doesn't make any sense. The only reason you learn the stock market is because you want to invest in stocks, and that's right. wrong." That learning mentality of you you learn to get a reward is the exact reason 90% of the population is poor. Wow. Lack of awareness, lack of expansion, lack of awareness in one field that allows you to identify an opportunity in another. If I didn't understand everything in banking, then I wouldn't understand why it is possible for someone to get a loan 100,000 above the value of a home in a time where banks are lending money, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I would have looked at it as, well, who has hundreds of thousands of dollars cash in their pocket to buy these premiums on lots? But that wasn't the case, right? I understood how banks work. I understood how banks made decisions. And so today, you know, I study a lot of different things. I'm not a real estate investor. I'm not a stock market investor. I still follow both. But it does not mean that I have to invest in both. Right. That's incredible. So essentially the equation to success in your words is knowledge and action. Well, which can be summed up into one basic thing, self-awareness. Hmm. The more self-aware you are and the less, the better and more aligned your view of yourself is within society and out of society, mm-hmm. then, then the more likely you are to continue growing and as a result of that growth you will find success look if, if everybody everybody's talking about growing your business 15 percent 12 percent 20 percent you know blah 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 blah. Yeah. how many people worry about growing one percent each day what if you did one percent better than you did yesterday yeah, how better that, would you be off in 365 days you'd be better sure. than 99.9 percent of businesses growing in america right Right. So why don't people do that? Because they're not motivated by the 1%. Well, because it's not sexy, right? Yeah. Because 1% doesn't sound amazing. And that's why I said at the beginning of the show, I said my life was a gradual uh, number of small wins that led to the opportunity of having bigger wins. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, how many people say, I don't have the capital to start a business. Okay. Well, have you had a job before? Do you have a job now? How many jobs do you hold at this current time that are paying you a wage? Well, I don't know if I can work for 12 bucks an hour. Okay, well then don't make money. <laughs> don't have capital. You know, like I don't understand what the question is, right? Right. Because yeah. that doesn't sound sexy, right? What's sexier, to go work a job for five years to have just enough capital to start a car dealership and buy some cars or to go raise some money and try to start a car dealership tomorrow morning, you know? Yeah, for Obviously, sure. one is easier sounding you know one sounds better you're focused on your passion you're doing the things you want but that's not how life works Hmm. everybody has a negative 100 to zero that they're not paying attention to everybody wants to get to the starting line no one's paying attention to what they need to do to be in a position to start so everyone's worried about what are they going to do the day they start so they're starting things they can't even sustain more than five minutes so what would you say to somebody listening to this right now? They've, they've, heard, they've heard this, like they're really inspired and uh, they're wondering, okay, what's the next step, 
right? Because one of the things I like to do is I always like to kick people up the ass and get them to do something because you can listen to a bunch of podcast shows, get very inspired, but if you don't take action, it's worthless, which is essentially what we were talking about today, right? What would be the next step? What would be the first thing that you think they should do? Align your goals to the reality of the situation. Like, look, if you're, if you're a kindergarten teacher and you have ideas and you have, you know, you have goals of having millions of dollars, well, that's not aligned. So start rethinking the plan. And even if you take one baby step towards the plan, it's better than not taking a step. So going back to what you said earlier on, which I thought was amazing, is, is stop thinking about the money and start thinking about being the best at what you do. Yeah, I mean, look, if you t today, right now, what you can do right this moment as you're listening to this, you can analyze your life. You can say, I have a job. I'm working on this business, whatever it is. Right. You can say, what is the value I provide to the world? What is my skill and talent that people are coming to either interact with or see? It could be how great of a talker you are and how much you smile while you bag uh, at the <laughs> local grocery store. Right. It could be that simple. It doesn't even right. have to be complex. Can you make people's day even better when you bag bags, right? Mm. Can you be even kinder to the employees you work with? Can you show up on time, deliver tremendous value and go home happy? Can you find happiness in being you instead of seeking happiness in the external that has no correlation with you? Mm -hmm. And then the, the happier you become, the more likely you are going to be to not focus on this idea that things could be better and just make them better. Because if you make your current situation better, if you have the best job today, even if it's a shitty job, meaning if you have the best opportunity at doing a good job at what you do today, and tomorrow you get another job that is still not the perfect one, and the next day you get another job that's still not the perfect one, if you do really well at all these jobs, you will get to a place eventually where you will look back and be like, I have built character. And so today I am starting my, bu my business and I will do the best job possible at my business as well. And so the character you build is what follows through all the years. You know, if you build a good work ethic, you're most likely going to carry that when you're working for yourself, no different than when you're working for others. Mm -hmm. so, so the point is stop focusing on the whole what could be, which is when I have my business, I will do so and so. But today it's not my business. It doesn't matter. And this is the mentality that drives people to stay poor their whole life. They always worried about what could be, never about what they're doing right now and what their commitment is to themselves today. Love it. What are you doing right now, PJ? Right now? I am yeah. sitting here talking to you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, what's your focus on right now? You've made a ton of money. What's the focus? What's the goal now? Well, now my goal is to really, I believe in my books and I believe they are part of my purpose in this world. And so okay. I've written my second, uh, I've actually written 11 books total with this last one being 11. But okay. uh, this second book is the follow up to my bigger book, Third Circle Theory. I believe there's a third book connected to that trilogy, okay. uh, which we'll be working on. But mainly today I spend, I, I understand that my talent is to, uh, is to educate people. Okay. And that's where I find different vehicles to take that education to people between secret entourage.com, exoticcarhacks.com, watchconspiracy.com, all of these things, teaching people different things. I have found a way to transition this learning online instead of on an offline basis that allows more and more people to get access to self-education. So my goal in the next 10 years is to change how 
new money looks at education. Amazing. And what a goal. So for those listening, uh, you've got to grab those two books. There's uh, the first book, which is the third circle theory, and then the sequel to that, Radius. Uh, where can they get those, PJ? They can get those at thirdcirclebook.com or powerofradius.com, and they can join Secret Academy at secretacademics.com. Secretacademics.com. So all of those links, as well as any of the resources we spoke about during this conversation, will be on the website at uh, www.danielgeffen.com forward slash 98. And uh, PJ, this has been amazing. How can they get in touch with you as well? Uh, the easiest way to follow me is either Facebook, or mm-hmm. uh, which is in my name, Pejman Gadimi, or on Instagram, which I'm very active on, and at I Create Millionaires. Amazing. And again, uh, if you want to join my Facebook group, uh, I think, PJ, if you're not in there already, I'm going to add you so that uh, those of you listening, if you want to pick his brain in the group, you can do that and just head over to Can I Pick Your Brain in the Facebook group. Uh, PJ, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain and thank you to all my fellow brain pickers. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking You've been listening your brain. to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.